Hey there, better human. How's your weekend going? Before we get started today, this is part two of my daily routine and ritual. If you haven't heard part one, I encourage you to start there. In that episode, I talked a lot more about the tactical stuff, an actual overview of the system that powers my life. In this episode, I will dive a little bit deeper and talk about the underlying strategies on how I organize the activities in my system. And then in the next episode, I will talk about the purpose, why I've chosen this set of things. I've also started receiving some questions from you guys, which is very exciting. I wanted to cover them at the end of this episode originally, but uh, it ended up stretching on a bit longer than I thought. So to give it the time and energy it deserves, I thought to do it in a separate episode. It's great to receive these questions, so do keep them coming. So if you have any questions or thoughts regarding this episode or the show in general, you can go to betahuman.co slash ask. And there you can either record a voice message or write in a written question through a form there. And I'll answer them either via personal email or in the next episode. I'll leave the link in the show notes, so don't worry about it. And one last thing before we dive in today. I've also started sending out a bi-weekly newsletter where I sent in my latest updates about the projects as well as some interesting links I've come across. If you're not yet a part of that list, I do encourage you to consider signing up. You can do so at go.betahuman.co slash newsletter. But enough of that. Let's dive into today's episode, shall we? Today we'll be talking about the key strategies, seven in fact, that underlies the system. And I'm sharing them because unless you're in the extreme 5 or 10%, these strategies will probably be useful for you, as it has been for me. And these are strategies that I've sort of studied and experienced uh, in the last five years, and I've used them to help me organize and order the activities throughout my day. Let's start with the first one group them together. I think I mentioned in the last episode that I break my day into three main parts, morning, afternoon, and evening. So as you can see, I tend to cluster the activities all together to help me do them easier. If you look at my morning ritual, there are five things that's really bundled in together. So first I take the cold shower and then I meditate. I fill in my daily ritual worksheet and then I write for an hour. Then I take a walk. I've also experimented with uh, some form of light exercise. Uh, I did stretching for, I think, over one and a half years. Uh, I haven't been doing it recently. But uh, when I was doing that, it was also part of this uh, It was part of this bundle. So if you look at it, that's five things all at once in the first 90 minutes of my day. And among them are two big things, meditating and writing. Two of the harder things, in my opinion. So as you can see, the trick is to link them together and see them as a whole. Because if you treat them as individual tasks, it's easier to skip them. Because I've seen them all as a series of things that are clustered together, when I do one, I tend to do the next and then the next. If they were separate, it's much easier to fail. 
So this is something that is a very simple but effective way of getting a bunch of things done at the same time. Number two, do them together. But while yes, I do mean that you should try and do a bunch of the things together, I actually, what I mean with this is that you should do the same type of activities together. In time management, there is a concept called batching. So batching allows you to maximize concentration and decrease distraction. As a result, you can increase your productivity, creativity, and mental sharpness, while at the same time decreasing fatigue, procrastination, and stress. Batch processing is the grouping of similar tasks that require similar resources in order to streamline their completion. It's often in this day and age that we go through our day allowing distractions to dictate our energy. We're constantly in a mode of reaction, interjections of those distractions, notifications from email, phone calls, text messages, voicemails, meetings, and so on. However well-intentioned, we often allow the priorities of others to overtake our own. How often have you had a project or specific task that require time and focus only to allow an email or someone to tap you on the shoulder to distract you from accomplishing it? This results in a perpetual state of shifting tasks and refocusing attention, which over time creates fatigue, stress, and decreased productivity. It's been said that every time we become distracted from the task at hand, it takes an average of 15 minutes to regain complete focus. So unless you are somehow intentionally managing your time, there is a very good chance that you are operating in a constant state of unfocused response. And unfortunately, that is what I observe with a lot of people. So the drawback of this is, is clear. You're not being nearly as effective or as productive as you could be, which means you end up spending more time, more energy, instead of less time and more effectiveness. Here is where the concept of batching and doing them together comes in. It minimizes the amount of distraction and maximizes your productivity by keeping you in the same state of mind throughout a certain time period. If you remember me talking about my maker's manager schedule, this is partly why the day is scheduled like that. So in the morning, I do things that are more brain intensive, thinking intensive, more producing stuff, writing, uh, thinking of ideas. And in the afternoon, I try to, you know, do the more managerial stuff, answering emails, uh, having meetings. And the idea is that I don't want to keep disrupting my thought patterns so I can focus time and energy to one kind of task at hand. So number two, do them together. Strategy number three, start your day off right. How many times have you ended your day feeling like you've been extremely busy, but then you don't feel like you've accomplished much? Or perhaps one of, you have one of those days where everything just went down the drain. You felt like you were distracted and you couldn't focus. You spent most of it putting out fires. Uh, I don't mean in a literal sense, but I mean in, in the work sense, sort of putting out little emergencies. I mean, basically life happened and life will keep on happening, which is why I think it's extremely important to start your day off right. You want to at least put yourself in the right mental or emotional state. The truth is, there's a lot in the world we cannot control. We may wake up feeling great, but then, you know, as the day progresses, 
our mood changes, our energy level changes, we meet some assholes. You never know what will happen um, throughout the day. So when you start your day off right, even on days where everything goes to shit, you still have a good start to the day. You still have that. And hopefully your day goes on well. I mean, you have an amazing day. Even then, you still have the morning ritual done. So there's really no harm done and everything to gain for when you start your day off right. Number four, eat the frog first. As Mark Twain once said, if it's your job to eat a frog, it's best to do it first thing in the morning. And if it's your job to eat two frogs, it's best to eat the biggest one first. There's also a book by this name, Eat the Frog, by this author, Brian Tracy, which has become a bit of a classic in this arena of productivity. So in my own experience, with writing, it can be a real pain in the ass sometimes. Some days, the words just flow out uh, of my mind easily. And on many other days, I'm just uninspired. I'm looking at the screen and it feels like, you know, nothing, nothing good is coming out. And actually, a lot of days, it's like that. Because I look back on the 90 minutes, I haven't produced anything noteworthy or good that I could use. But this is part of the process, right? If you have any sort of practice uh, towards some kind of mastery in anything, you understand you just have more normal days as much as you have great days or bad days. And this is my way of eating the frog first because I know from my own experience in the last five years, if I don't get my writing done the first thing, first hour in the morning, there is a 90 to 95% chance that I don't end up writing for the day. So as you can see here again, the maker manager's schedule comes into play again. It helps me to prioritize the important stuff first. I think maybe two or three beta quotes ago, I was sharing a quote by Eisenhower who says, who said this, what's important is seldom urgent and what is urgent is seldom important. So it's worthwhile to think that you should prioritize the important stuff first. The thing that is that the thing that will make the most difference if you were to get it done. And sometimes this includes things that we don't really want to do and we end up avoiding them for a reason, right? Why we keep procrastinating on them because they are hard things. There's another reason why eating the frog first has its benefits. There is a concept called decision fatigue. I think I might have talked about this before. Simply put, decision fatigue is the deterioration of your ability to make good decisions after a long session of decision making. It is part of what social psychologist Roy F. Baumaster called ego depletion. Or the idea that you have limited willpower, so when you use it up, you will end up making poor choices. And then number two, working for an extended period of time or being forced to make multiple complex de decisions uses up your stores even faster. In other words, the more decisions you need to make, the worse you're going to be at weighing all the options and making an educated research back good decision. It's also the same reason, if you already notice or know of this, why people like Barack Obama always wore the same Navy suit, why Steve Jobs was always in the black turtleneck, or Mark Zuckerberg in his hoodie. They are making a lot of decisions throughout the day, so by optimizing or sort of reducing one, reducing one less decision that they have to make, they get to keep more of those cognitive reserves to make more important decisions. 
I think the most famous study in this, uh, with this concept is when researchers looked at over 1,100 parole hear- hearing decisions made by judges in the U.S. What they discovered was that the most influential factor in whether someone was granted parole wasn't their crime, background, or sentences, but what time their case was heard. They found this in the study. Prisoners who appeared early in the morning received parole about 70% of the time, while those who appeared late in the day received parole less than 10% of the time. That's a 60% difference. I mean, sure, the effect is not com- has, hasn't been completely verified. Studies have sort of, other studies have been unable to rep- replicate the exact effects of decision fatigue. But I mean, I'm not taking any chances. I know that when the day drags on, and I've had to deal with a hundred different things. My focus gets stretched, my mood changes, and my when my energy lowers. So I think it makes a lot of common sense to just tackle the most important problems you have when you are at your freshest mentally. But what is agreed in science is this. There is an energy cost to our actions and thoughts. The jury is still out if the thinking if thinking harder actually consumes more energy. But in theory, a more difficult mental task requires more energy because there is more neural activity. I'm going to end with this note on this topic. No matter how rational or sensible you are, you simply can't make decision after decision without paying a mental price. And unlike physical fatigue, which you will be consciously aware of, decision fatigue often happens without you knowing, and I think that's where the danger lies. Strategy number five, follow your rhythm. In 1729, French geophysicist, astronomer, and most notably, chronobiologist, and I hope I don't massacre this, Jean-Jacques de Tour de Meuron, was intrigued by the daily opening and closing of the leaves of a plant that he saw. So he decided to do a test around this, and he took a plant, most likely the mimosa plant, and placed it in a dark closet. He then observed it and noted that even without having access to sunlight, the plants still raised its leaves during the day and let them droop during the night. His observations and experiments inspired the beginning of what is known as the study of biological circadian rhythms, often referred to as the body clock. The circadian rhythm is a cycle that tells our bodies when to sleep, rise, and eat and is in charge of regulating many physiological processes. Your circadian rhythm is basically a 24-hour internal clock that is running in the background of your brain, and cycles between sleepiness and alertness at regular intervals. This internal body clock is affected by environmental cues like sunlight and temperature. It's also known as your sleep-wake cycle. There are clear patterns of brainwave activity, hormone production, cell regeneration, and other biological activities linked to this daily cycle. We humans are diurnal animals, naturally active during the daytime, and our circadian rhythms reflect this. Generally speaking, for sleep to occur in the right part of the circadian rhythm, the time of the minimum body core temperature and maximum melatonin concentration should occur towards the end of the sleep period. Circadian rhythm is a temporal biological rhythm that shows a period of approximately 24 hours, in Latin, circa 
means about, and this means day. As a rough guide, our body core temperature usually reaches its minimum around 4.30 or 5 a.m. in the morning in human adults. Melatonin in our body, a hormone that is produced by the pineal gland and which regulates sleep and wakefulness, is normally completely absent during daytime and typically begins to be produced around 8 or 9 p.m. at night when you start feeling sleepy and stops around 7 or 8 a.m. in the morning. The deepest tendency for sleepiness occurs in the middle of the night around 2 to 3 a.m. along with a shorter and shallower period of sleepiness, often referred to as the post-lunch dip, about 12 hours later, around 2 to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So this may be adjusted by up to maybe 2 hours either way, depending on your chronotype. Chrono means time. So chronotype refers to the time of the sleep and regular activities of an animal. For instance, nocturnal animals are active at night, while humans, as I mentioned, are diurnal, active in the day and sleeping at night. So some people, known as larks or morning people, tend to wake up early and are most alert during the first part of the day. Others, like myself, are more of a night owl or evening people where we are most alert in the late evening and prefer to go to bed late. You can't really see the illustration, but I do encourage you to Google this. You can see in the typical circadian rhythm, we are at our strongest. We have the greatest cardiovascular efficiency and muscle strength around 5 p.m. And that is when, and that is why, I go training around that time, why I usually train between 5 to 7 p.m. Hey Better Human, if you're enjoying this show, you can do one of three things to support me. Number one, Anchor now allows you to support this show for the price of a coffee each month. You can do it at anchor.fm slash betahuman. The second thing you can do is to share it with someone that you think might benefit or will enjoy the show. You can also go leave a review for me on iTunes. And last but not least, you can just send in a question and I would love to engage with you, find out more on how else I can help. So there you go, those are the ways you can do to support the show. Now, back to the episode. Strategy number six, mix it up. There is a concept called habituation, which is can be called as the get, to, get used to it concept. Habituation is a psychological learning process where there is a decrease in response to a stimulus after being repeatedly exposed to it. So for example, when you first enter a room, you may feel distracted by the noisy sound produced by the fan. But as you spend more time inside the room, you tend to ignore the annoying sound even though it is still there. This situation is an effect of habituation. You sort of tune out that sound after a while. It doesn't require you to be aware of this process. It occurs naturally and unconsciously. One of the more interesting facts about habituation is that the decrease in response is specific only to the stimulus in which the habit is developed. So, for example, if you are habituated to the taste of chocolate-flavored ice cream, your degree to responding to vanilla-flavored ice cream will significantly increase because you have not developed a habit of it yet. 
So this is a very important concept. We get habituated to anything and everything, which is why it's important that you keep switching gear throughout the day. And you can break it down into different categories. For example, if you look at how my day is structured, I try to alternate between different things. So if you look at the mental task, I'm trying to mix it up by doing different kind of tasks throughout the day. So there's, again, the maker and managing tasks. Some things I am uh, thinking and creating mentally, and then some stuff requires a different kind of mental energy. And then there's the physical part, right? So I go from... I try to mix it up. Uh, I'm sitting. I usually in the morning um, and sometimes throughout the day, if I'm working from home, I work from a standing desk and then I take walks. Then I go training, running. So you see, there's a good variety of um, tasks along the day. And then there is also being alone and socializing with people. And the key idea here is while we cannot fight habituation because it's given a chance it will happen you can do things to sort of actively and consciously uh, guard against it by mixing things up uh, throughout the day so for example i know there's a tendency when i get too focused i want to sit down all day long so with the routine and the ritual that i've set up uh, in this way it forces me to change my states physical states mental states uh, constantly So that's from the day-to-day stuff. And then if you talk about, if you zoom it out a little bit, the reason why I introduce new experiments constantly, such as the cold shower one, is that I want to make sure I'm always rocking the boat a little bit, especially when it becomes too steady. Because not only through the real concrete task that's in front of you, you can also habituate in terms of mindset. You can get used to something. And when you get used to something, then you are not really reaping the full benefit of uh, performing that task. All right, on to the final strategy, ending well. So the key idea here is that you want to end your day off well. Um, Admittedly, this is probably the area I'm the weakest at. I'm trying to get better at this. Um, But I think there are really interesting uh, thoughts as well as science around this thing that we are only currently discovering. So it has to do with the power of the suggestion, power of the subconscious mind. And many famous people have had interesting practices around here. Um, And I've also read different books around here. So this has sort of, I would say, made me more open to trying things out in this area. So Thomas Edison has a quote that goes, never go to sleep without a request to your subconscious. In fact, if you dig into it, it is a common practice for many of the world's most successful people to intentionally direct the workings of their subconscious mind while they are sleeping. Your subconscious never rests and it is always on duty because it controls your heartbeat, blood circulation, digestion, controls all the vital processes and functions of your body, and knows the answers to all your problems. So this is something that you hear over and over again, especially with the whole self-help, personal growth uh, kind of authors. A lot of them are not only recent, but also classic and famous ones like Napoleon Hill and even movements such as The Secret. They all lean on one key idea, is that what happens on your subconscious influences what happens on your conscious level. In other words, what goes on internally, even unconsciously, eventually becomes your reality. And this is what they mean by saying 
change your belief, change your life. So as a result, their suggestion is that you want to direct your subconscious mind towards creating the outcomes that you seek. I mean, this is the realm of intuition, right? And I mean, I'm sure you know how powerful intuition can be. And I think there's something interesting there to explore for sure if we want to unlock some connections and solutions to problems and projects. I mean, have you ever wondered why the term is called sleep on it? Research has confirmed that the brain, especially in the prefrontal cortex, is most active and readily creative immediately following sleep. So while your subconscious mind has been loosely mind-wandering while you slept, making contextual and temporal connections, creativity, after all, is about making connections with different parts of the brain. One of my personal heroes, Josh Waitskin, a former chess prodigy and a Tai Chi world champion, explained in one of my favorite books, uh, The Art of Learning. He, in the book, he talks about his morning routine and how he tries to tap into the subconscious breakthroughs and connections experienced while he was sleeping. So unlike most people who check their phone within minutes of waking up, Josh goes to a quiet place, he does some meditation, and he grabs his journal. Then he thought dumps for several minutes. So rather than focusing on input, like people who check their notifications, Josh Waitskin's focus is on output. This is what he called crystallized intelligence, and how he taps into his higher realms of clarity, learning, and creativity. So going back to the quote by Thomas Edison, never go to sleep without a request on your subconscious. Consider the request you made of your subconscious just before going to bed, asking yourself questions, you know, things you've been grappling about. At this point, I can't give you a conclusive um, recommendation because it has worked for me sometimes, not all the time. But what I can say is this, it's a very low cost um, to do this, to end your day well, you know, ask, making habit of asking yourself some questions. I mean, with my own daily worksheet, uh, what I've done is I try to read one of the last thing of the night uh, as well as filling up the worksheet and I try to also have some moments of gratitude there. So at least I just end my day off uh, in a nice way. Uh, and if you really want to try this, there are uh, three ways you can do this. And this is from a book by Joseph Murphy called The Power of the Subconscious. And in it, he outlines three tactics you can use to cultivate a relationship with your subconscious. Uh, number one, a repetition. You can feed your subconscious mind with repeated constructive and harmonious thoughts, uh, leading to the formation of new healthier habits for your subconscious mind. Uh, you can make an effort to think positive thoughts about yourself. Repetition. Number two, suggestion. We all have our own fears, beliefs, and opinions. It's important to remember that these are the inner assumptions that govern and guide our lives. Through the power of suggestion, you are able to suggest thoughts to your conscious mind. So you can try proactively suggesting new beliefs to your subconscious. If you're afraid of flying, for example, you can continuously think about statistics regarding the safety of air travel. And the idea is eventually your subconscious will start to believe you. And the third one is something that has, I think there's some hard science behind it. Uh, a lot of people practice it. A lot of high performers practice it, including athletes. It's called visualization. Uh, mental visualizations are a powerful way to convey an idea to your subconscious. Once you can feel it and see it, you can create it. 
to apply this, just try to create a vivid mental picture of yourself successfully performing a task. Uh, repeat this uh, frequently to effectively imprint it on your subconscious. So there was uh, three ways uh, you can try if you want to cultivate a better subconscious habit. So in summary, um, there are a lot of interesting things you can do once you have a better understanding of the natural and biological rhythmic undercurrents. I think we want to do two things, right? First, you want to be in sync with them as much as possible. So if you really look into the circadian rhythm, um, you really start to see there are some biological rhythms that we are subjected to. Um, and that has been a part of evolution and part of our biological programming. So the last thing I want, or the last thing if you want to create change, is you want to reduce friction, which is key. I have a theory uh, analogy, more like, that I like to use. Um, imagine you're driving a car and you want to go faster. You can either step on the gas or you can make sure that the handbrake is off. Uh, it sounds ridiculous, but I've done this many times. That uh, sometimes I've driven off and I felt the car was dragging and I realized that I didn't bother to check that the handbrake was disengaged. So I see this happening a lot, that people try to go too fast without re reducing some of this uh, drag this uh, friction uh, in their life when they try to accelerate so when you understand things like the circadian rhythm you start to know how to use it in your advantage then the second thing is there's also your own rhythm which is your own disposition your own character your own personality and your own preferences and you have to try things out to find out what works and what doesn't work for you there are a lot of things that I know that are good in theory and probably in practice, but I don't do because it doesn't fit me uh, at this moment. And I say at this moment because it can change and it probably will change looking at how much has changed for myself in the last five years. For example, studies have shown that exercising in the morning will help you to get better sleep. Well, because exercise is a form of stress and your body reacts to stress by releasing hormones, including adrenaline. So you don't want to take a shot of adrenaline then uh, expect to fall asleep soon after, right? And the second thing, uh, second benefits of morning workouts is that it has been shown to enhance your metabolism, the so-called afterburn effect, or what in science is known as the EPOC, Epoch, excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. Several studies have shown there's a strong correlation between the number of calories burned post-exercise and the activity's intensity. Uh, simply put, the more intense the exercise, the more oxygen your body consumes afterwards. And if you were to study um, any of the high performers, you would quickly realize that a lot of them do work out early in the day. But I don't do it primarily because it's torture for me. Because as I mentioned, I'm not a morning person. So even though I'm aware that there are very compelling reasons, I don't do it uh, because it doesn't work for me. Because what is important for me is that I exercise. So if I'm going to put in a lot of effort already, I don't want to put in any more additional unnecessary effort uh, that's going to detract me from actually exercising. So I tell you this um, because you should always try things out. You should never be too... I mean, I think some people are too concerned about what science says. Uh, they need proof. 
And in many regards, I think science is slow. So, for example, uh, science only beginning to realize empirically the effects of meditation. Um, so it should be a mix between your own practice, your own personality, and um, actual knowledge that you can lean on. So find what works for you. Uh, just because this has worked for me um, in this order doesn't mean it will work for you. That said, I think the strategy, as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, I think this will apply to most people unless you are really in the extreme. Um, you like to wake up and have a bad day, have a bad start of the day. So yeah, that's it. I'm going to quickly summarize uh, before I leave you the seven key strategies that I use. Number one, group them together. Makes them easier to do. Number two, do them together. That means batching the same kind of task uh, together. Number three, start your day off right. Because if everything else goes to shit, you still have that. Number four, eat the frog first. Do the most urgent and important thing first. Even if it's those things that you would rather not do. Because that's when your mental freshness is at the highest. Number five, follow your rhythm. Understand that there is some underlying biological rhythm that powers you. But also use your understanding of yourself, your own preferences, to put things in a way that makes it easiest for you to accomplish the task. Number six, mix it up. Always try to introduce variety into the things that you do um, in terms of intensity or type of activities. And last but not least, end well. End your day well by doing having a sort of ritual uh, to capture the best part of your day or to tap into your subconscious while you sleep. So that's it for today. I hope you found this useful and I'll see you back here again next time. Ciao.